Isaiah chapter 40 has been the prophecy of God bringing good news to His people. And the good news message is that though they would be carried away into Babylonian captivity, and though there would be nothing left, God did not desire their ultimate destruction, but that God was going to come with the desire to save. He was going to offer words of comfort to His people to forgive them of their sins, that they would see the glory of God and it would be revealed before them and God would tend His flock like a shepherd, gathering them in His arms. This has been the declaration of the Gospel. And it is beautiful and exciting that is delivered. God is coming and God is coming with compassion to save his people from their sins. And what this next section now in Isaiah 40 looks at is answering the question, can God deliver his people? The first 11 verses of Isaiah 40 was simply, does God desire to save his people? And now the question is, can he do it? Sure, he may want to, but it's a whole nother thing to say, will he do it? Can he do it? Does he have the power to accomplish it? Consider why this would be a question. The nation is in devastation. That's what's been prophesied. They're not going to be in the land anymore. The temple is going to be destroyed. They're going to be dwelling over in Babylon. And it looks like all hope is lost. Is God able to restore this nation? Is God able to deliver them? Is God able to keep His promises? And I submit to you as we study this tonight, this becomes relevant to us because the answer to these questions help us understand why we can trust God to deliver us, not only in present difficulties and suffering, but to believe that God will deliver us on the day of judgment. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to read it section by section because what God does is He just offers all of these points as to why you must believe God. And as we read each of these, let your imagination go and hear God picturing Himself and how majestic and great our God is. So Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12 is where we begin. If you have the pew Bible in front of you, that black Bible, that's page 600. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales, and the hills in the balances. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The first argument that God offers is simply my massive nature. Who else is wise and as massive as God himself? And notice the imagery that he uses in verse 12. Who is able to measure essentially all the waters of the earth? In the circle of his hand. 
you get a visualization of the massive size of God. When he says, now, who else can take all the oceans and all the water that's on the earth and and stick it right here in his hand and measure it out? (laughs) The immensity of God is being described. He goes further and says, who can measure all the heavens, the skies and the stars and space? Who can measure that in the span of his hand? And the span was from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. And he says, you know what I can do? I can measure all the heavens right there between my hands. You're just getting this immense size of look how great and big God is. How about this when he says, who can put mountains on the scale and measure it and weigh the hills on the mountains? Just picture God just going, I think I'll weigh that mountain. Stick it on the scale. It's just describing God as this huge God who can move and measure the all of creation. It is a description that God is able to measure these things and all of these things are manageable to him, which becomes, I think, shocking to our ears, because if the physical creation is immense to us, you know, think about the size of the Atlantic Ocean. Think of the heights of the great mountains from like the Rocky Mountains or perhaps Everest and the Himalayas. And we look at those and go, that is massive. And God says, oh, I can put that right here in my hand. I can measure that right here. Well, that says something about who we are in the face of God and how powerful and massive our God is that we serve. Verse 13 goes on to speak of the wisdom of God. Uh, Who can tell the Lord what to do is really the question here. And who does God need to consult? Who is going to inform God? Who is going to be God's advisor? Who is going to be God's counselor? Who is going to teach God something? And here's the point. God doesn't consult with anybody. He doesn't need information from anyone. He doesn't need some kind of counsel to be told what to do. And the reason why that sets him apart is in its most immediate context, the Babylonian god Marduk, the legend to him was, well, he had to counsel with other gods as he made decisions. And that's not foreign to the whole pantheon of God concepts. If you cared at all about Greek or Roman mythology, those gods always worked in tandem, right? One's always talking to the other about a particular problem. And this one does this one, and he talks to that one, and that one does that. And God comes along and says, I'm not talking to anybody. Nobody can tell me a thing. Who do I need to consult? Who's going to teach me? I am the great Jehovah God, and I can be consulted by anyone. No one tells me. No one counsels me. No one advises me. No one teaches me. Who is going to tell me for I am God. And so that's what verses 13 and 14 are describing. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. Because how often we want to think we can teach God something. You know. Well, I, you know, Job falls into that one, right? Well, God, you know, if he knew that I could teach him something, if he'd come down here and give me an audience, I'd be able to. No, you're not telling God anything. 
And sometimes we act with some arrogance on our part as if we need to counsel God. That that God doesn't know what He's doing. He's really making a mess of my life. He's making a mess of this world. And you know, we need to set Him on the right track. And we don't say it like that. But often we act with that kind of intention. As if God's not doing a very good job up there. And if I could be king for the day, I'd set things in motion. I'd fix it all up. Who are we to teach God? Who are we to advise God, to counsel God, to tell Him anything as to what He should be doing? And that's what God sets forward as His first point. Do you understand how massive God is in knowledge, in understanding, and just in breadth of creation? He is a great God. Number two, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Here is now a point to how powerful God is. Notice the picture. He says the nations. He's not just talking about political boundaries here. He's talking about all the peoples of all the nations. He says, you know what they are to the massiveness of God? All of the peoples are like a drop in the bucket. I like really the good energy. They're like dust on scales. You know, you go up to something. I found some old shoes under my bed and replaced our bed. Oh, there's some shoes. I had a brand new set of shoes in the wearing them, wearing them tonight. Uh, in the box, I went, hey, I didn't even know I bought those shoes. Like, man, there was some dust on that thing. And so what do you do the dust? So I just, just blow, you know, blow it right off. God says, here's what the world is to me. Here's what all the nations and all the peoples are. They're like dust on scales. Go. And in fact, that's the language he uses here. He just, it's just like dust on the scales. He takes no account of them. They are as nothing before him. Verse 17. It's just like nothing. And so the picture is how insignificant we are before the presence and the might of God. Verse 16 speaks of it as well. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, he says. Lebanon's renowned for its cedars. And he says, you could gather all of the massive trees of Lebanon as your altar. And he says, next line, and all the animals of the earth as an offering before me. And that is not, does not even begin to be worthy of me. You have been to California, those massive sequoia trees and the great redwoods of the Northwest. He says, you gather all that up as fuel for the fire and throw all the animals on the earth on it. I ain't worthy of what I deserve. And doesn't begin to be big enough of an altar deserving to God, he says. And so again, he's just shocking the minds of this immense, great God. And it reminds us really of our feebleness before him. You know, our worship is as nothing before him. There's there's no points like, wow, that was really good. Thanks, guys. I appreciate what you did this Sunday. I needed that. God's not like that. We're not giving him anything as if he were in need of something. He says, take all the trees and throw all the animals on it. That doesn't even give me anything that I need. 
You can make the biggest altar in the world. He says, this is my worthiness. In fact, I love even what he says there in in verse 15. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Take all the islands. He says, that's just like, you know, particles to me. All those islands out there. Eh, Specks is how God describes it. Beautiful picture of the might of God. And it helps us understand that any opposition before God is as nothing. There is nothing that can stop God. It would be as ludicrous as an ant trying to stop you from moving. That's what it is for any group of peoples, even if it were the whole of the earth, trying to stop God from doing His will. It cannot happen. And so he describes how immense he is, how powerful he is to speak this to the people. You think I can't save? Look at my size. Look at my wisdom. Look at my might. Look at my power. Now, number three, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. I love this one. Whereas he just simply says in verse 18, Now, what can you compare God to? Nothing. There's no comparison. Here's God. Okay, please try to compare me to something. Go ahead. Pick something of my equal that you can say, now there's an equivalent. He says, there's nothing. There is no comparison to the Almighty God. And then he says, are you going to suggest an idol? And he gives three reasons why he's not like an idol. Number one, he says, there's no image that can represent God. There's absolutely no image that can represent God. I submit to you, that's why one of the early commandments, God said, don't you dare make any images because there's nothing like me. I don't care what you see in all the physical earth. There is nothing that represents God. There is no image. He says, you're going to create some kind of idol? Not going to happen. Then he goes further and says, "What, what happens with an idol? Well, the human... Puts his gold on it, puts silver on it, puts the chain. He adds something to the idol. He says, what are you going to add to me? You can't compare me to an idol. You can't add anything to me. God is perfect. He is whole. He is complete. There is nothing that humans add. An idol, oh, you add all kinds of neat, beautiful things to it. Add little trinkets, make it really pretty, make it this height, do all these things. You can't do that with God. And then number three, perhaps the funniest of all, I love the line when he says, and they fasten it down so it will not move into verse 20. (laughs) Got to make sure your little idol doesn't fall over. (laughs) You're going to compare God to an idol? In fact, he uses that, I think, as a great point. Rather than trying to compare him to an idol, delight in the fact that God is able to move. That God is able to act. That God is able to accomplish things. And He is like no other. Anything else out there, He says, a human being has to come up to it, create it, fashion it, add gold to it, and then nail it into place so it doesn't fall over by the wind. You can't do that with God. God moves. God acts. God does as He wills. 
And so he is the only God. He is incomparable and there is nothing for us to be able to liken him to. And so to be able to appreciate the God that we serve, that he is like no other, he is able to act and accomplish his purposes. Verse 21, number four. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Here is a picture then of an active God. That he is far above all creation by every measurement. Verse 21 is a great beginning. He basically says, do you get it yet? Do you get how massive I am? Do you get how I cannot be compared to anything? And then he continues on and explains that. Notice the language of verse 22, this great vivid imagery. He sits above the circle of the earth. That almost gives you a picture that the earth is like his ottoman. He's just he's sitting there in the glory of heaven, propping his feet up on the earth. Here's the circle of the earth, and there's this little thing. And notice the picture as he looks down on it. He says, "We're all like grasshoppers." <laughs> and you ever been in the the final moments of your uh, airplane flight as you're coming in, and you kind of look down at everything and go, "Man, everything looks real small." Most of the the planes, as they come into West Palm Beach, they bank right over our our subdivision. And so from time to time, I've been able to see the subdivision down there and go, well, that really big subdivision looks really, really teeny. And those people down there look really, really small. And here's God going, oh, I'm sitting here looking at the earth from on high and everybody looks like a grasshopper to me. That's how big I am. So you get this, again, imagery of massiveness of God, this immensity of God. Notice the next picture. He says, the heavens are like a curtain to me. So here's all the sky and all the stars and all the space. He said, it's just like a curtain. You just kind of pull it back. It's, again, small as if nothing to him at all. Verse 23, look at that one. He says, you know, all the leaders of the earth, there is nothing to me. And I I like verse 24. He says, scarcely are they planted. Scarcely do I blow on them right off the scene. You think your leaders are powerful and great? You think that they are to be trusted? You think that they have some kind of might? God says, scarcely they're here. They're gone right away. And then God says, I blow on them and they're gone. They're like dust to me. They're simply wiped out. They're carried away like stubble. And that's why he can ask the question in verse 25. So who again are you going to compare me? And then look at verse 26. Talk about trying to compare yourself. Listen to what God says. God says, I'm so massive and powerful 
Not only do I name the stars, but I call upon them and they come out and shine. Can you do that? I just call them out by name and they exist. They maintain themselves and they're extinguished by my word. Because that's how powerful I am and that's how active I am. And so you see a picture of God who is moving through the earth. If Israel is sitting back and saying, well, we've been captured by the powerful Babylonian Empire. God's saying, "Uh, I still am moving. And you think that leader is something? I pluck him off. I move stars. I can certainly move leaders. I have power over things over all the earth. And then listen to how all of this comes to this amazing culmination. Now listen to verse 27, what God does now. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Let's just stop there and think about that question for a moment. He says, How can somebody say, and in particular talking to them, here they are, Isaiah's prophesied, you're in captivity, you're exiled, it's the end of you. How can somebody say, God does not care about my situation? That's where he goes with this in verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord. He doesn't see what's going on in my life. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Notice verse 27. And my right is disregarded. He doesn't understand what is happening. He doesn't understand my circumstances. You ever felt that way? It's easy to feel that way when things go sideways, when life gets tough, when suffering comes along, when pain and trial hit us hard. It's easy to begin to wonder, does God care? Does God see? Does God know? Is God going to act? This is where God takes this whole picture now of his massiveness and says, now somebody is going to say, I don't care. Listen to his response. Verse 28. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen to what God says about that. He says, Are you considering that God doesn't know, that God does not see, that God is not going to act? He begins by saying, do you suppose that I tire out? I am the everlasting God. There's a reason why we stop working. Why do we stop? We're tired. We stop moving because we're done. I'm tired. We're worn out. 
Nothing more is going to be accomplished. Here is God saying, I am the everlasting God. That means I don't tire out, which means I continue to act. That should be one of the concepts we have about God when He speaks of Himself being from everlasting to everlasting. Is that we do not have a God that needs to take a nap. We don't have a God who has to take a vacation. We don't have a God who says, well, he's going to have to take it to the side for a while. He'll check back in a little bit later. God is always acting. God is always moving. God is involved. Do not sit back and say, well, God does not know that God does not see my way, that my right is now being disregarded. He knows exactly what is going on. It's not as if he's asleep. He is the almighty God. He is more massive than anything we can comprehend. And to suggest that he does not know our plight and does not know our situation suggests that he is a small God, that he does not know, that he does not have might as if he wears out. And right along with that, to call himself the everlasting God, it is an important reminder for us. Friends, God's not bound by time. And that's going to become a critical message for Isaiah to these people to understand that God keeping his promises are not bound by time. We have such a hard time with that. We do. We have such a hard time with that. It, time just goes on and it causes us to doubt the promises of God. You can imagine how they would feel. They're going to get taken away into captivity. God says, I'm going to rescue And generation after generation die in Babylon, waiting, waiting, waiting. When's God going to come? First taken away in 606, it's going to take 70 years before the first people come back. And that's a small group. It's going to take even another 100 years before more come back. All of this time is going to go by. Think about the promises of a coming Messiah. Isaiah has promised, there's going to be comfort to my people. I'm going to send you a righteous king. And a hundred years goes by. And another hundred. And another hundred. And another hundred. And another hundred. Keep going by. And it doesn't look like anything's going to happen. It is a reminder to us, a critical reminder to us, is that his promises do not have to come right now because he is the everlasting God. He is not bound by time. We live in such the right here, right now. If God doesn't do something right now, he must be dead. He's not going to act. We look at this and go, it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ left. God's not ever coming back. His promises must be void. Where's the promise of his coming? Surely it's not going to happen. It's been too long. The Lord is the everlasting God. He is not bound by time. Time means nothing to him. It means everything to us. Everything about our lives is centered on that. And it is hard to get our mind around an idea of something being eternal to not be moved by time. 
Everything moves by time. This sermon has to end on time. We've got to get to bed on time. We've got to wake up on time. We've got to be at work on time. Everything is about time. And God says, what's time? I'm the everlasting God. It's amazing. It's just hard to comprehend the massiveness of what God is saying. And we take today and look at God and go, well, where are you? And God says, do you not comprehend how massive I am? Do you not comprehend who I am? And begin to understand my promises. And listen to these promises. They are glorious. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might. He gives strength. There is a great promise to stick on your refrigerator right there. Because who is he talking to? He's talking to the people who don't think God's going to do something. Back in verse 27, who are the people he's talking about? Here we are in captivity. God said he's going to save us. Where is this comfort? Where is this deliverance? God says, I will come and save. I will give strength to the faint. I will lift up the weak. And in fact, notice how he contrasts that in verse 30. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. I love how he kind of squeezes this in right here to remind us. Your human strength amounts to nothing. It will not save you. It will not solve your problems. I love that. When we're young, we can do anything, right? You know, we can do anything. I'm beginning to realize, no, I can't do anything. I've got to go, go to bed by 10 o'clock. It's horrible. What happened? You stay up till 3 in the morning. No big deal, right? The youth have strength and live. And then you get old. And what happened? He says, but guess what? Even the youth get exhausted. Even with all of that energy and all of that strength, he says, you still stop. Only God doesn't. Only God doesn't run out of strength. Only God doesn't run out of power. Only God doesn't run out of energy. And he says, I will give strength to the faint. I will give that to the weak. I will give you the strength that you need. And so notice what verse 31 gets at. This verse is amazing. But they who wait for the Lord. Wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who rely on those promises, who understand the massiveness of God, who understand the promises of God and are willing to wait for God to accomplish that. He says they will have strength. Notice the beauty of there. He says you're like soaring on the wings of eagles. He says, I will give you strength. Well, where, what does he mean? Why should there be strength? What about the idea that here they are in captivity, they're totally desolate, there's nothing left. God says, I will deliver you even though you're in misery now. Where is the strength in that to wait for the Lord? And I submit to you it's one thing. It's delighting in the knowledge that God does what He says. The strength comes about 
knowing that God accomplishes his plan because he is massive and nobody stops him. He makes the stars shine and extinguish. He causes leaders to rise and fall. He blows upon them and they're gone. He says the earth, the inhabitants are like grasshoppers to me. He says these things, I can hold the oceans in the palm of my hand. And you think I will not accomplish my purpose? Do you think I will not keep my promise, God says? Nothing can stop him. He's too big to be stopped. He's too powerful, too wise, too active, all-knowing. He is the amazing God. And so the strength to soar like eagles comes from the knowledge that when God says something, it must come to pass. For us... The strength for life comes from knowing Christ is reigning now. He's promised to return and to bring those who are faithful to him home. There's nothing that can stop that. Our strength does not come from God. It has to happen now. Our strength comes from, I know it will happen because nothing stops the Almighty God. And when He says it, it will happen. And that's where our strength comes from. And that is why we do not grow weary. That is why we do not grow faint. That is why we will not be weakened when we are crushed down by trials and we experience all the difficulties that life can throw at us. We will not be wasted down because of our problems. We will not give up our hope, even though sometimes it can seem all hope is lost. We will not give up the fight against Satan, even though he can take his shots at us because God keeps his word And he keeps his promises and my hope and my delight and my joy are built in that. That gives us strength. Because when I look at my circumstances, it doesn't seem strong. But when I keep my eyes on the massiveness of God, now I know I can get through. Let me put it another way to you then. A correct perspective on human problems is only achieved by having an adequate understanding of God. And I use the word adequate because I don't know. We're trying to get to the full knowledge of God. Still working on that one. But trying to take a glimpse of the glory of God to see God for who he is, just to get an idea of how massive he is, how intelligent he is, how great he is. And I keep my eyes on that. Now I can have a proper understanding to get me through my difficulties and disappointments and problems. And I think it is important as he asked the question in verse 27, why would you say that God does not care? Now put it this way, then the understanding of God then is limitless. In fact, notice the end of verse 28, his understanding is unsearchable, he says. And so any of our complaints against God are 
totally misguided. Totally misguided. It causes us to think, who are we to complain at the one we have just read about in all of his might and massiveness as if we have some sort of understanding on how things are supposed to go. Lord, my life should be like this, really? Says who? Because who are you and who am I? We're but grasshoppers in this sight. We're just dust in the scales. We are as nothing. And so I submit to you then that we do not live by having all the answers. We live by faith. That's what's being pictured right here. Those who wait for the Lord. What's he asking them to do? He's asking them to trust him completely. That's what faith looks like is waiting for God until the answer comes. Right. That's what faith is waiting for God until that answer arrives. He says, those who wait for the Lord, that they are the ones that will have strength. And so what we need then is a clear understanding of God, a clear understanding of his glory to keep in mind the massiveness of God and a greater passion for who he is. To be thankful for God, for the power that he exhibits and the wisdom that he exerts and the might that he has. Our our time with God, our following him and our serving him is not about trying to cut a deal to make life easier now for us. That's not. The scheme of the scriptures. That's not the purpose of God. I'm afraid so often following Christ is boiled down to, well, it's just a better life now. It's just going to be easier for you. And then the first thing comes along, it shocks the person, and they go, well, what happened to God? And out the door they go. That's not what the scriptures ever describe. Remember what. Chapter 39 said in chapter 38, there will be nothing left. They are going to be destroyed. But God says, I'll keep my promises and I will keep my covenant. Instead of seeing following Christ as an attempt to cut a deal for an easier, easier life now, we are following Christ for the real payoff in the future that God has promised. We follow Christ today and we are renewed to follow Christ every day because of what he has promised. That becomes the motivator every day because God keeps his word and nothing can thwart his promise. And so I continue to follow him and I continue to obey him. Though things get difficult, I continue to have faith. Because he will keep his word. He's promised to be with him eternally. He's promised to give you true life. He's promised to give you everlasting satisfaction and inheritance that's waiting in heaven for you. All of these glorious promises that have been given. Think of the imagery of Revelation as there are Christians dying for the cause of Christ. And the promises that are being offered is simply... Well, you'll have a crown with me, and that'll be worth it. 
You'll reign with Christ. You will be joined with Him. Final thought, final screen for you. So where have we staked our happiness? Is my joy in looking forward to the coming of the Lord and all the promises that are bound in that to be with God forever, to enjoy his presence, to see him face to face, to enjoy eternity with a glorious God? Or is my joy simply in the false things of this world, the satisfactions that we think we find in this world? I put in the bulletin this text because I wanted you to kind of begin thinking about the significance of the statement of the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is a big declaration. That statement holds true when we see the glory of God and appreciate those promises then what else is there to desire but God alone? God is my salvation. God is the whole of my existence, all of my meaning, all of my value. To use what we've talked about in Ephesians, all of my identity is all bound in God. He is everything, as the psalmist says, and what else on earth could we possibly desire but Him? And if it has no meaning to God, then it has no meaning to me. For God is everything. All I want is Him. And then to have a perspective on life that says, and everything else is a gift that I will offer thanksgiving to God for. All I need is Christ. And everything else is just the whipped cream and cherry on top. That's why Job could say, naked I came and naked I go, blessed be the name of the Lord. How do you say something like that? Because God is your whole life and everything else is just a blessing and we thank God for it. That was the hope he gave them. That was the message to them. Trust God. He is massive. He is glorious. He keeps his word and he'll keep his promise to you as well. You open your song books then, and we're going to sing this invitation song inviting you to come to Jesus Christ. Inviting you to see Him as the keeper of promises who said, I've come to die for your sins. Not only so that you'd be forgiven, but that you could be reconciled to God, to have relationship with God, that He could be your Father. You could be a child of His. There's nothing better than that in life. The writer of Ecclesiastes searched high and low throughout life trying to find something of substance and meaning and value and satisfaction and came to a recognition at the end of that book, the whole of man, the whole, it is all our very being, our very substance, our very existence is to fear God and keep his commandments. That is everything. Christ is all And everything else is a glorious blessing. Will you come to Christ tonight, turn away from your sins, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and follow Him in faith with all of your heart? Won't you come now while we stand and while we stand?